Foundation Beyond Belief is a 501c3 nonprofit and does not endorse any candidates. Any political opinions expressed in this episode are the personal opinions of the hosts and do not reflect Foundation Beyond Belief's positions. I, I complained about accessibility and this particular elected official said to me, we've tried to please you. I don't know what more you want from us. I did it just for the image of me actually in my hospital bed, full of IVs and tubes and signing my elections paperwork that I am officially running for Congress. Hey, I'm Sarah Blaine. And I'm Evan Clark. Welcome to The Humanist Experience, a podcast series where we seek out transformative encounters that educate our emotions and expand our world. On this episode, we're going to look at the political process through the lens of accessibility and lack of it for people with disabilities. What do people with disabilities contribute to the civic sphere, political movements, and social change? What challenges do they face? And this issue is timely. People with disabilities are largely responsible for defeating the recent attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, the ACA. The disability community organized and participated in sit-ins at Senate offices in more than 20 states. These people literally put their bodies on the line. They were arrested by the dozens. They were dragged out of their wheelchairs by police. Images of these protests were seen all over the country, in hundreds of news stories, and it kept the media telling stories about how the ACA's cuts would destroy lives. Those efforts were vital in preventing a repeal of this life-saving legislation. And in fact, people with disabilities have, throughout history, been indispensable in movements for progressive change. On April 5, 1977, Proud and defiant, five to six hundred people in wheelchairs with walking canes and hearing aids stormed the regional office of Health, Education, and Welfare in San Francisco. A handicap demands that Section 504 of the Civil Rights Act be signed. Elizabeth, what's going on now is an overnight sit-in. But the able-bodied majority has not made it easy. Nope. Despite people with disabilities being such an enormous minority, about 50 million Americans are estimated to live with a disability, somewhere around 20% of the population. Despite that size and strength, people with disabilities face incredible barriers to full inclusion within our civic systems, unlike those encountered by any other demographic in America. People with disabilities are barred from many public spaces and activities because of the discriminatory choices made by business owners, the government, and frankly, all of us. We wanted to explore this more and answer questions like, how are we culpable for creating these barriers, and what can we do to remove them? I have dogs, I have cats, I want my life, and without my life, 
I'm nothing. I'm going to end up in, an, in a nursing home. What we need is to be able to live independently in the community. This episode has been a long time coming, as we've had numerous humanist experiences around disabling traditions, structures, and norms in electoral politics and campaigns. If you've listened to our earlier episodes, you know that I have a neurological disorder that causes certain kinds of light and noise to disrupt my balance, so I sometimes rely on a wheelchair to assist me in getting around without falling. So I live the disability experience. But as an able-bodied person... Well, temporarily able-bodied. The vast majority of people do experience disability at some point in their lives. Right. So as a temporarily able-bodied person, we looked for some ways I might gain some perspective on the disability experience. Let's set up that backpack. Understanding fully that... Spending a few hours voluntarily in my shoes would only provide a glimpse at my perspective. We put Evan in my wheelchair for a day. (laughs) Where to? (laughs) But we struggled to find a convenient day. So the the disability episode, we're just waiting to have um, experiential audio with you in the wheelchair. Okay. But we keep not scheduling it because it's inconvenient, <laughs> which I think we should talk about because that's go to the airport. It's almost as if it's inconvenient to be in a wheelchair. It's it, almost as if that is true. So I kind of feel like we should just have you have wheelchair day today. <laughs> Basically, nothing about Evan's wheelchair day was realistic. From the fact that we tried to plan it, to the fact that he had a team of friends around him in case he needed help. It was almost like a game. Ooh, a game. A game called Scavenger Hunt for an Accessible Bathroom in Historic Downtown Prescott, Arizona. Oh, what's our first clue today, Sarah? Our first clue is, try the toilet near the food from the east, the place where you and your love did first feast. Cheese, which we were talking about, which is a Chinese food restaurant. Went on my first date with Meredith there. <clears throat> Some of these buildings are older, but not all of them. So yeah, like, how would you get in these? There's no way. Do you see a way? Wow, it's like a, is that like an eight inch stair here? Yeah, yeah, it's about eight inches. <laughs> That's what she said. Oh, what is in here though? All right, let's keep moving. Next clue. The next clue. At this second restroom, you will find no rest, lest you master a spatial acuity test. That's accessible, kind of. And accessible doesn't even mean you can get in. It often means you can turn around. Uh, So just because you can get through the door, I got to get up on the flat part. Here we go. Just because you can get through the door doesn't mean you can actually... Um, do anything. (laughs) Oh, we're having fun tonight. Let's keep them coming. They just keep coming, she said. (laughs) This bathroom's well-placed just at arm's length, but its access, you'll find, takes feats of strength. All right, we can check out the frozen yogurt. The bathroom might be accessible, but there's a thing blocking it. So see how they put those seats in? That might actually block 
your ability to get through with a wheelchair. We saw that when we were in uh, Texas. We were at this cool coffee shop, and it was an accessible bathroom other than the fact that in the bathroom hallway, they put a big bench. And so suddenly, what are you gonna do if you're in a wheelchair? Move the bench, like. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna have to go to the bathroom when we're done with this. Another one. Another one. If you're able-bodied, this bathroom is easy. But if not, you'll run around till you're queasy. Okay, so in order to get to this bathroom, I had to go back out towards the entrance, through an outside patio, down through an accessible ramp to the second floor, back in, and then up another ramp over to the bathroom. Just so I could wash my hands. All right. Now I gotta go back that way to make it up. Oh, Where's the pull towards And where I was sitting is currently 10 feet to my left up two small flights of stairs. But I can't do it. So here we go. Alright, let's bring it home with our final puzzle tonight. Finally. At this restaurant named after Poe, wheelchair users can finally go. Ah. Let me just make sure I can turn around. And do the full 360. Woo. All right, that is an accessible bathroom. Thank you, Raven and Presque Arizona. Now, unfortunately, your awesome rooftop is not accessible, but you know, you did the rest. You did well. All right, so that was fun. But to be perfectly honest, Wheelchair Day kind of was a bad parody of do-gooder activists trying to understand the minority experience. And that's a concern we've long had about the experiential process we even use for this podcast. Yeah. In real life, it's not funny. It means not being afforded basic dignity. Essentially, Those of us in this situation are asking society's permission to use the bathroom, and we have virtually no power if a business, home, or society as a whole tells us no. Stunts like these do draw attention to accessibility barriers we might not otherwise notice, and lots of people gain this awareness when they experience temporary disability, like broken bones or sprains. But what's frustrating is how quickly we go back to our regular lives in a world engineered for able-bodied people. We don't see the barriers anymore. The need for universal access loses its poignance for us. What happens is, and I've seen it happen a number of times with a number of advocates who have had injuries or illnesses that have rendered them temporarily disabled, They'll tell me, oh, my gosh, I don't know how you do this. Uh, uh, You know, we're going to do better. And, you know, the further they get away from that event, the healthier they get, the more they return back to their typical body before that injury, the less they remember. That's Jen Longden. Jen is a former business professional whose life took an unexpected turn 11 years ago when she received a paralyzing gunshot wound from a random drive-by shooting. Uh, I became paralyzed. I was shot in the middle of my back and paralyzed from my chest down. And my fiance uh, sustained three gunshot wounds, the worst 
was the one was his head injury uh, that uh, destroyed his optic and olfactory nerves and left him with a very significant uh, frontal lobe injury. So he's completely blind, has no sense of smell, and um, his uh, executive function, his ability to reason through problems, has been um, significantly impacted. The event altered the fabric of Jen's life. Since then, she's achieved national renown as a disability rights advocate. Jen now works almost full-time on disability access issues and gun violence prevention. You may have even seen her standing behind President Obama last year when he announced his executive actions on guns. And these steps will actually lead to a smoother process for law-abiding gun owners, a smoother process for responsible gun dealers, a stronger process for protecting the people from uh, the public from dangerous people. Where too often. However, Jen's prestige as a disability rights activist doesn't shield her from everyday indignities people with disabilities often face, even in places like Arizona's House of Representatives. Uh, I was over in the house, and uh, I couldn't use a restroom in the state house. So the only restroom I could use, I know where that is. You know where it is, too, right? It's over in the Senate, right over in that uh, that um, east corner of the building, right? Now, Jen had already broken a knuckle trying to get into one of the inaccessible bathrooms at the state house at this point. And so... The next opportunity comes, and boy, I've got to go. And I dart out of the building. There's a short break, and I go whipping across the mall. Zoom into the Senate building. Well, you know, there was a mirrored reflection uh, of myself moving toward the building, but the folks inside could see that, you know, I was coming at the equivalent of a dead run. And there were two senators who, uh, Republican senators who, uh, I kind of crossed swords with on uh, gun violence prevention. They saw me coming, and one grabbed the other by the shoulder and jumped up on the stairs to get away from me. Uh, and I really had to go to the bathroom so bad that I, I didn't even care at that moment. It's like, I must be... But, I mean, and there you are. How do you, how do I, you know, effectively lobby if there's no place that we can just do something simple like go to the bathroom? I bruised the hell out of my knuckles in the same Arizona house bathroom where Jen broke hers. But beyond Sarah's disability experience, the very first campaign Sarah and I worked on together was heavily enmeshed with disability issues and experiences a congressional race for a young, progressive atheist named James Woods. James's race wasn't just unique because he was very progressive and very secular, running in the most conservative city in America. He also had a story that may be similar to one you've heard from friends, relatives, or neighbors, but not one you typically hear from politicians. 
because in our culture, we hide illness and disability as if it connotes weakness or ineptitude. In the fall of 2006, I was working in the IT department of a local mortgage company. And I was having some uh, shoulder pain in my left shoulder. I thought I'd just pulled a muscle or strained something because I'd been trying to lift a little bit of weight and try and uh, gain some muscle and increase my endurance. Now, this was well before the Affordable Care Act. And despite having a great job and a decent salary, James was paid as a contractor and didn't have health care. So, like a lot of folks do when we're worried about racking up unnecessary medical bills, he put off going to the doctor, hoping his shoulder would improve on its own. But over a couple of weeks, the pain became excruciating. But it got to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. Even though I didn't have insurance, I decided it was worth it to me to go to the hospital and get checked out. Went to the emergency room. Uh, they agreed with me that, yes, I probably did just strain something. But uh, just to make sure, they took uh, x-rays. When the doctor came in to talk to James after looking at the x-rays, the news wasn't good. Says, well, I've got some bad news. Uh, you have osteomyelitis in your left clavicle. Um, we're going to admit you, and you're going to the surgery tomorrow. We're going to be uh, removing a, a part of your collarbone because you have a bone infection. The bone infection was MRSA, or MRSA, an antibiotic-resistant type of staph infection. It's incredibly serious, with mortality rates ranging from 20 to 50%. The infection moved to James's blood, causing septicemia, and his organs started shutting down. And because of that infection, I went into kidney failure, uh, had to go on dialysis, and then a month before my 27th birthday, uh, two months later, uh, I went blind. I woke up on a Monday morning, my vision was going dim, I complained the doctor. They said they would need to get my infection stabilized before they could really do anything about it. And by the end of that week, I completely lost my sight, not even light perception, and I haven't seen anything since. Even after going blind, James's struggle was far from over. He hinged on the edge of death for months. Even entering hospice at one point, he spent weeks in a nursing home and a second MRSA infection resulted in the amputation of several toes. James went from living as an independent young man with a great job and a bright future to an institutionalized dependent, subsisting in poverty on Social Security, food stamps, and Medicaid slash Medicare. The low point was institutionalization. James was placed in a skilled nursing facility, essentially a nursing home for people who are too sick to be at home with a home health nurse, but not sick enough to be in a hospital. So the facilities are usually um, older facilities, overcrowded, loud, um, they smell, and they're just generally really depressing places. Um, 
it just has this oppressive feeling about it of uh, hopelessness. And the staff is overworked. Um, they're, they're usually understaffed. You don't see doctors as often as you probably should. And uh, living in a situation like that is extremely difficult. And it's not surprising that most people go into them don't come back out. But because of the support and care James received from his family, medical team, and government health care coverage, James did get back out. And with a new sense of urgency for making people understand that the lack of access to health care in America is destroying lives, James spent the next couple of years learning orientation skills, learning mobility skills, and learning adaptive technology so that he would be able to regain his independence. And as he regained that independence, he was able to participate more and more in the political sphere. He started by going to a couple of local activist meetings, including the monthly Democrats meeting in his legislative district and the Phoenix chapter of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And James eventually networked with political insiders from these circles, leading to the day his legislative district asked if he would consider a congressional run. James signed his paperwork to run for Congress from his hospital bed two days after receiving a kidney transplant on February 6th of 2014. I did it because, well, there was a deadline, but also just for the image of me actually in my hospital bed, you know, full of IVs and tubes and machines and everything else, still have a giant bandage across my, my side signing my elections paperwork that I am officially running for Congress. Um, the And just to raise awareness about uh, organ donation. You know, donating, uh, that's something that I real f- feel very passionate about. It's saved my life. It's changed my life twice now. And I, it's something I talk about a lot to this day. And that was a really uh, unique opportunity to talk about that in a very in a way that uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of politicians, first of all, could do that, and second of all, would do that. James wanted to highlight the issues with which he had been coming face to face, like how going on disability essentially means being trapped by poverty. Imagine trying to meet your expenses and having an active civic life on an income of food stamps and SSI checks, which together total less than $900 a month. We knew it would be a tough race in a conservative district, but we weren't sure how James's health and physical disabilities might cause extra challenges. Doing the uh, events here in Phoenix during the summertime in dress clothes uh, can be absolutely brutal for anyone, but in particular because of the fact that I had a kidney transplant, I need to keep uh, extra well hydrated. Uh, otherwise, it can make me very ill, if not have the kidney get rejected. The reality of maneuvering through political situations blind revealed itself quickly. Um, hardest part for me uh I am not great at my orientation and mobility skills. My cane, I'm still learning my cane skills. I'm 
technically certified for indoor travel, but I'm not great at it for uh, outdoors, and uh, crowds are very difficult, and any kind of networking event where there's lots of people, uh, it's overwhelming. Just lots of people around, it's noisy, um, things are moving around all, like, all the time, so you can't use sound and other cues like that to navigate. It's uh, nerve-wracking, and that was my biggest challenge. Even one of the events we planned for James failed to be accessible for James. Um, one of our campaign events, we uh, arranged to have some uh, Perkins Brailers set up, and we were going to help uh, local candidates. Of, it was a nonpartisan event. Either party could come. Anyone who's running was invited to come and have their uh, business cards brailed. James gave a great talk at that event. But he gave it facing away from the audience because we hadn't given him any orientation clues. Uh, <laughs> and after that, we came up with a solution of having uh, Evan usually go to the middle back of the room and cough loudly so I knew where to face when I got to the microphone. It was a learning process for all of us the entire campaign. And looking around at other campaigns, time and time again, we'd find organizers failed to present information or materials in an accessible format. Meetings, events, and other political activities were often in inaccessible spaces. Uh, I haven't been able to park. I haven't been able to get inside the building. I haven't been able to um, access the same space where the political event or the candidate might be. Or once I'm there, I'm not able to do things like use a restroom or circulate through the space in the same manner that everyone else would. It is a real problem. Even for events to which James had been invited as a speaker, so the organizers knew well in advance he'd be coming, we kept running up against barriers. Both Jen and Sarah had their own stories of the same kind of discrimination. Um, and then one of the other things that happens a lot is I'll be asked to speak at events, and you know they'll put it, they'll they'll have a stage, and somehow they'll figure out how they're going to get me up on the stage. They'll have a podium, and you know it'll have that big stick mic. Uh, and there's no, everyone else gets to speak from notes, right? I don't have a place to place my notes. So I have to either speak without notes or shuffle them on my lap, which doesn't work because, you know, stuff falls off my lap. And I'm left without an appropriate opportunity to be mic in the same way that everyone else is. Yeah, the first time that I testified in committee at the legislature as a lobbyist after I started using my wheelchair, I called the house like four different times and talked to a million different people to make sure they knew I was going to be testifying in that committee and just make sure everything's going to be accessible. Yes, it's going to be accessible. And they had the same the mic that was attached to the podium, so I couldn't reach it. And so the whole testimony, there was an aide, like, leaning over me, like, pulling the podium halfway 
everybody down so that it could be up. I mean, it was just like the most. That happens to me too when I have to go over and testify at the ledge. Now remember, people with disabilities make up roughly 20% of the population. When you're shutting out that many people from the political process, what does democracy mean anymore? Yeah, and I uh, and I think I've told you before that I was really shocked at the response that both that we got both with the Woods campaign and my myself when I was lobbying for Secular Coalition, because I really thought, like you say, that it was just an issue of education. And so if I went to the folks hosting the events and just said, "This isn't accessible, and I need to get in," that it wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> that there would be thought moving forward to, to how are we going to make sure that this is inclusive and and it just not a single time <laughs> were changes made that I that I asked for. We kept being told that the reason accessibility wasn't a priority was because people with disabilities never show up to political events. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine an organizer saying something like that about women? Well, gee golly, we hold our most important meetings in the men's steam room and other places women aren't allowed because, you know, they never show up. As we mentioned earlier, people with disabilities do show up to political events, as we saw with their successful efforts to stop the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. But these events were specifically organized by the disability community, so events and communications were purposefully made accessible. When is the last time you attended a local um, party event that automatically had a sign language interpreter present? Never. But I want to understand why ASL is not represented. Uh, you'll hear that that's because, well, no one ever comes. I'd like to know, is that, why, why would that be? Is it that there are no individuals who are deaf that are members of the Democratic Party? There are no individuals who are deaf who are civically engaged? Or is it that individuals who are deaf have time and time again come to understand that they are not welcome and included so they don't even bother to try? After too many frustrating election cycles, Jen essentially threw in the towel when it came to doing campaign work in inaccessible party offices. Instead, she opened her own home, effectively turning it into a full-fledged Democratic field office. We were running a really large operation out of my house. Um, you know, two to three shifts of phone bankers. We had taken both of my spare rooms and, and turned them into phone bank offices. We were running canvases out of my house. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours of volunteer time were running out of my home because it was fully accessible. I had, you know, staffers sleeping at my house, you know. It was one of those things that had really become a satellite headquarters. Then when the uh, results party happened, it happened in an inaccessible building. And when we started this whole thing, I said, the only thing I ask is that you do not have your results party at that particular venue. 
uh, which is where they always go, because it's a union shop, so I get that. And I explained, look, it's not wheelchair accessible. A friend of mine nearly died there because he got trapped without access. You know, there are Department of Justice lawsuits against the building. Surely those are as important as, you know, their, their status as a union shop. And don't you know that when the time came, after all of those hours, all of those hours, all of the sacrifice, loss of privacy, all of those things for so long, everyone said, hey, goodbye, and they all left and went to the results party at a place that I could go. We had our own problems with election night. Uh, on election night, we were uh, I was invited downtown to speak at the uh, big Democratic electoral uh, night celebration. And uh, when we got there, uh, we were told that the only way to get to the ballroom where the event was actually happening was up a long escalator. Uh, escalators are... Uh, particularly terrifying for the blind uh, because they are dangerous for sighted people and even more so for the blind and I also have balance issues because I'm a par partial amputee I was walking with James to help him physically navigate the loud election party and of course I have a balance disorder so escalators aren't my friend either the fact that the event was held in an inaccessible location was discrimination People chose to keep the disability community out. But it's not framed like that. No one considers escalators a violation of civil rights. Yet, choosing to exclude people with disabilities is clearly discrimination. Yeah, I had one elected official in a private email. Uh, so I complained about accessibility, and this particular elected official said to me privately in an email, um, we've tried to please you, and I don't know what more you want from us. So what is the solution? I always hoped that if people would see uh, that I wanted to participate. And, and when I say I, I'm, I'm speaking of more than just myself. I'm speaking of I as a community, I think, uh, because I have any other number of friends with any you know type of disability who have also found themselves effectively shut out from these type of events who believe that, you know, if I just show up and this time, if I let you lift me into the event, you're going to see that next time you should ramp it so that I can attend with my dignity. And I find that that's not the case. Part of the problem is that we don't really view exclusion of people with disabilities as discrimination. We may agree that lack of accessibility is a problem that should be worked on, but most of us don't think it's bigotry that keeps people with disabilities out of buildings or unable to read our communications or hear a candidate's speech. No, most people view the problem as the disability itself, not the discriminatory choices able-bodied people make. The general thinking is this. Those of us with disabilities can't get into events because our bodies don't work right. Not because political leaders and organizers made ableist decisions. 
We can't read certain communications because our eyes don't work normally, not because of anti-disability discrimination. We can't hear speeches because our ears are defective, not because an entire campaign is prejudiced against people with disabilities. And while we might think it's nice if the place we want to hold an event is accessible, or someone volunteers to do ASL for a candidate, or caption a video, when these things don't happen, people in the political community are not holding leaders accountable for violating the civil rights of people with disabilities. And yet, that's what's happening. That's where fundamental biases and stigmas lie. We think people with disabilities are defective, rather than understanding that we've built systems and structures to exclude some kinds of bodies from full participation and to preference others. If it came to the attention of progressive organizers that LGBTQ people were being barred from a particular event, can you imagine the response being, oh, that's unfortunate, we'll have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about our next event? Of course not. There would rightfully be outrage. The event would be moved and the location would be boycotted. So, what's the difference? What's different is that we're not yet honest with ourselves about our anti-disability biases. We're not holding accountable the political leaders who have shaped an exclusionary, physicalist political process. And that is just as wrong as sexism, racism, and homophobia. And we need to start calling it out. Our rhetoric needs to change. Instead of saying, oh, can we hold this event at an accessible location? We can be more straightforward. An inaccessible location is a discriminatory location. We need to insist that we hold events at locations that do not discriminate against people with disabilities. And we need to ensure that information is available in formats that don't discriminate against people with disabilities. When we fail to do this, We are complicit. We're acting with bigotry and ableism. So practically speaking, what does inclusion look like in politics? Being able to safely park, safely access the space, get inside uh, with dignity and autonomy as a person with a mobility challenge would be great. Um, Once I'm inside, Again, ensuring that individuals with disabilities have the same access that everyone else does to restrooms, um, to um, be able to circulate through an area like anyone else, that would be great. Those are the things that I would work on first. I would also ensure that any printed material is available in an alternative format for individuals who are blind or have visual impairments. These are simple, simple things that can be done to ensure that you're representing all of your constituency. Progressives are beginning to understand the value of encouraging women and people of color to run for office and to support them when they do. Similarly, we need to ask people with disabilities to run and we need to support their campaigns. It's going to be a challenge, but you absolutely should do it. Running, not only are you doing it to bring awareness to your cause and the disability community in general, but just normalizing the idea of persons with disabilities running for office is important. 
Having more elected officials who understand disability because they experience disability can help improve policy decisions. This can ensure that the disability community is taken as seriously as other marginalized groups. Jen Longden isn't waiting for someone to ask her. This fall, she launched her own campaign for the Arizona State Legislature. So with that being said, folks, I would like to introduce the woman of the hour. Please welcome your next state representative, Jennifer Longden. But Jen can't fix accessibility in politics all by herself. It's gonna take all of us working together, starting with our own local communities and campaigns. We need to humbly confront our biases and become strong allies in the work to achieve full inclusion. nothing but make us stronger. We're speaking of something that goes beyond our bodies. Our uh, priorities are not comfort. Our priorities are justice. Next time on The Humanist Experience. I would love to hear the story about how you met Sarah. I met Sarah on OkCupid. I'm super embarrassed right now. Why? This is weird. How did we meet? Uh, <laughs> Tinder. If you would like to support the Humanist Experience, you can find the link to donate to our work at humanistexperience.com. Once again, that's humanistexperience.com. As the official podcast of the National 501c3 nonprofit Foundation Beyond Belief, Gifts to the humanist experience are tax-deductible. Another great way to support the podcast is to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever fancy podcast app you use. It really helps us grow the podcast visibility. Seriously, check it out. Seriously. Also, make sure to follow our journeys across the country on Facebook and Instagram. Special thanks for this episode go to... Our guests, James Woods. And Jennifer Longden. Our sponsors, Matthew Farron and Jackson Piper, for helping our Kickstarter earlier this year. We truly would not have been able to do this without you. Our Greek god of design, Gustavo Youngberg, and our development associate, musical director, and editor of our podcast, Eric Zakalamadingdong. We can't forget our producer and Sith Lord of Sound, Andre Soleil at Unbelievers Media. The Humanist Experience is produced in collaboration with Unbelievers Media, LLC, and is the official podcast of Foundation Beyond Belief. We're your hosts, Sarah Blaine and Evan Clark, and we'll see you next time. A game called Scavenger Hunt for an Accessible Bathroom in a Historic Downtown Prescott, Arizona. Oh, what's our first clue today, Sarah? It's a loud envelope. <laughs> take, your, take your time. Okay, okay. I think that went well. The sound effect was awesome. Try the toilet near the food from... What? Try the toilet near food from the east. Try the, the toilet. Try the the... Okay, that's why it's confusing. All right, I'm going to stop. <laughs>